This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Well, you, apparently you guys know the drill. Kids, you are dismissed. Follow Senor Rob. Well, good morning. I want to tell you, if you weren't there, you missed a great Claris conference. It was a lot of fun. I wanted to say, uh, one thing that we learned there was, was about Paul boasting in his weakness. Uh, the, the, that God is glorified when Paul boasted in his weakness instead of his strengths. And... It made me think about this church, and I thought I'd take a moment and boast in my weakness. I think it's really awesome that God would have such a friendly church with such an introverted pastor. (laughs) That um, you guys talk, and Marvin can't get you to be quiet, and visitors feel uncomfortable when they get swarmed. And um, I boast in that weakness of mine because it's all to the glory of God and it shows his work here and not our own. So we're going to be in John chapter 1 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. As you're turning there, I want you to picture yourself this morning as a juror in a courtroom because a key witness bearing very important testimony has taken the stand. And just like every witness, this witness's time in the stand is going to consist of two elements. First, every witness has their credibility tested. One of the attorneys will try to establish their credibility, while on the other hand, the other attorney will try to poke holes in their credibility. You know what I mean, like, Mr. Witness, isn't it true that you hate puppies? And he'd be like, well, I, maybe I had this, no, Mr. Witness, yes or no, do you or do you not hate puppies? They're going to try to, you know, make them look bad. That's the first element, have their credibility tested. The second element is following the, the testing of their credibility, then the witness will give their testimony. They'll tell you what they're there to say, and you, the jury, are left to decide whether the witness's testimony is credible. I want you to picture that scene this morning because John the Baptist is going to take the stand and as the jury, you and I are going to determine whether or not we find his testimony credible. That's the question we have to answer before we can really understand what this passage is about. Do you believe John's testimony is credible? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? We're going to be in John chapter 1, with that in mind, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? 
He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, I pray that you would come and reign in our hearts that you would make yourself known through your word, that you would again reveal our Savior Jesus to us and all that he is. Show us your power and your grace and your might and your mercy, your love, your sovereignty through your word, Father. Sink it deep into our hearts and cause it to change our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So first, look again. Back up at verse 19, where, like I said, we the jury are are being asked if we find John the Baptist credible enough to testify. As is normal in any testimony, the witnesses ask to identify themselves. So these religious leaders ask in verse 19, who are you? But I want you to notice that by later, by verse 22, they're still asking the same question. Who are you? Why is that? Why are they still asking the same question? Well, it's because John knows something that might not be terribly obvious to us. You see, at this point in time, the religious leaders had decided that the Messiah was going to be a political king who would restore Israel back to a place of geopolitical power and authority. The way that that this Messiah, they thought, was going to do that was by defeating and and subjugating all of Israel's enemies back under their feet. And John the Baptist knows that's who they're looking for. Which which is why, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but it's why John the Baptist doesn't answer their first question that they asked in verse 20. Did you see that? They ask him, who are you? And John says, I'm not the Messiah. He's like, I know what you guys are really asking, and just, no. 
you're barking up the wrong tree. I, I ain't the guy you're looking for. So they ask, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet, meaning the prophet that Moses promised would come, God said would come like him in, in Deuteronomy 18? Are you the prophet? No. John's like, listen, guys, you can keep asking all day long, but I'm not the guy you're asking about. I'm not the guy you want. I do want to point out, however, there's one answer that John the Baptist gives that might have some of you Bible nerds, you know, chewing on your pencils a little bit. Um, you see, it's interesting that John the Baptist answers no when they ask if he's Elijah. Because not only did an angel tell John's mother that he would have the spirit and power of Elijah in Luke chapter 1, but in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus himself said, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. So why would John deny being Elijah when clearly Scripture says that he was? Well, again, it goes back to his credibility. Because you see, not only had the religious leaders corrupted uh, who they thought the Messiah would be, but, but who his herald would also be. Meaning, the question behind the question they're asking is, is are you the super prophet who's going to tell all the dirty Gentiles to get ready for that butt whipping they got coming from our super awesome king? John's answer is like, no. I ain't the Elijah you're looking for. In other words, when we look at John's credibility, he is displaying incredible humility here. I mean, all John had to do is say yes to one of these questions, and he would have been treated like royalty. He would have been instantly rushed to the top of everything, but he didn't do that. In, in fact, when they finally say, John, we need an answer. Quit, quit messing around. Who are you? He clearly points away from himself and towards Jesus in, in verse 23. He said, I'm the one, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now you have to understand something very important that's going on in verse 23. Think of it this way. You've heard this before, I know. If I were to say something like, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Instantly, this, this massive weight of context comes to mind, right? Han Solo, Darth Vader. What exactly happened between Luke and Leia? You know, like this big context comes to mind. If I was to say um, four score and seven year ago, again, this, this big massive weight of context comes into our mind. And, and the same is true with the Bible. When John the Baptist says... I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. He's using that short phrase as a hook to pull a huge amount of context into the mind of the hearers. You see, the, that verse, it comes from one of the most important sections in the Old Testament, in Isaiah. The, the book of Isaiah is broken up roughly into three sections. In the first section, it's Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, God basically tells Isaiah to tell the people, you know, if you repent, you can still turn this ship around. Uh, if you repent, you can still be saved, but I know you're not going to, so here's the judgment and all the terrible things that are going to happen when you don't. Probably not a verse you want to use in a wedding, something like that. It's pretty rough. I don't know. Maybe you would. It depends on the wedding. But the next section, 
Isaiah chapter 40 through 54. That's what John is talking about. It's the section of Isaiah that's often called the book of consolation. Because it's where God describes how even though Israel has rejected him, he's still going to comfort and redeem them. But the important part is it's where God introduces his servant through whom he's going to accomplish this redemption. So this section, it builds and builds with this crescendo of hope and and anticipation about how God is going to redeem Israel through this servant. But guess where that crescendo peaks? It peaks in Isaiah chapter 53 with, He was despised and rejected by men. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our, our he was, excuse me, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. It's this beautifully ironic section of Isaiah. But back to John the Baptist. Guess how that section of Isaiah, that book of comfort that, that concludes with God's suffering servant, guess how it begins? That whole section about God restoring His people through His suffering servant, it kicks off with a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So when these religious leaders ask John the Baptist who he is, John's answer is, I'm just an unidentified voice in Scripture. Who's crying out in the wilderness, get ready for this servant of the Lord. He's saying, I'm not even worthy to perform the most menial tasks. He's saying, listen, you guys are asking all the wrong questions. Enough about me. Let me tell you a little about the one I'm here to introduce in verses 25 through 27. In other words, when it comes to the credibility of John the Baptist, there is a lot to admire. He's incredibly humble. Even when pressed by these religious leaders, he keeps saying, it's not about me. It's not about me. My job is just to tell everyone the Lord is coming. In fact, he says in verse 26, you guys shouldn't even be talking to me. He's already here. You just haven't noticed him yet. But he wasn't just humble. He was also boldly honest. He took on the religious power brokers like these, and he called a spade a spade. He didn't care. He looked them right in the eye and told them they too needed to repent. And when they didn't, he called them a den of thieves. And it wasn't just these religious leaders. He also didn't even hesitate to take on the guys with the real power, the Roman rulers. In fact, he got his head cut off for telling Herod that that seducing and marrying his sister-in-law was a sin and that he had to repent In other words, John the Baptist was never a puppet for anyone. In fact, Jesus himself called John the Baptist the greatest man who ever walked the earth. So how about you? Do you believe John the Baptist is credible? Do you believe it's worth listening to his testimony? Because the resounding answer from Scripture, much less Jesus Christ himself, is yes. He is absolutely credible. John is humble even when fame is dangled in front of him, and he's as honest as they come, so honest that he didn't even care if it cost him his life. So do you find John the Baptist credible enough to testify? 
because, like I said, now that his credibility has been tested, he's ready to give us his testimony in verses 29 through 34. And all we have to to do to understand the the thrust, the the point of John the Baptist's testimony is to look at the bookends, the, the beginning and the end of his testimony. Look, he begins in verse 29 by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then he ends his testimony in verse 34 by saying, I have seen and borne witness that he is the Son of God. In other words, listen, it it took us a little extra time to get here. But if you find John the Baptist credible, then his testimony, and therefore the point of this passage, is this. Jesus Christ is both your Lord and your Lamb. That's the point of John the Baptist's testimony. Jesus Christ is both your Lamb and your Lord. Look again at what he says in verse 29. He says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we've got to be a little careful here because this verse is sometimes corrupted into meaning something that it doesn't. John the Baptist's reference to Jesus taking away the sins of the world, it's not a description of who he died for. He's not talking about a a universal salvation where where Jesus died for everyone's sins. It doesn't matter what they think or do or believe. That everyone's saved. That's not what it means. No. He's contradicting the religious leader's expectation that the Messiah was only coming for the Jews. Again, remember, the religious leaders thought the Messiah was going to wipe out all the Gentiles. But John the Baptist is saying no. In fact, not only is he not going to wipe them out, but he's going to forgive their sin too. In other words, this person John the Baptist is talking about was going to take away the sins for all who would believe, even those who persecuted the Jews. Now, it's really easy for us to look down our noses at these hypocritical religious leaders who had no idea who Jesus was and who he was coming. Those idiots, why didn't they know? I'd like to really put ourselves into this scene, into the shoes even of these religious leaders. I want you to listen to this story from a lady named Corrie Tin Boom to really understand how the Jews felt. Now, many of you are familiar with Corrie Tin Boom. She and her sister, Betsy, they used their home to hide Jews during World War II for which they were eventually arrested, sent to a Ravensbrück concentration camp where eventually her sister died of starvation. But listen to how she describes an experience she had in 1947. This is after the war in Germany. She wrote, It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never 
questions after a talk like this in Germany in 1947. People just stood up in silence. In silence collected their wraps. In silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the stream of others leaving. At first I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, then the blue uniform and the visored cap with its skull and crossbones. And it all came back to me with a rush. That huge room at Ravensbrook with, with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking past this man naked, I could see my sister. I could see her frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. But now, he was standing right in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, especially the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with any of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I thought, Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? And I stood there. I, who, who needed my sins to be forgiven every day and could not. Now I tell you that because the people of Israel had been subjugated and enslaved and persecuted for centuries like people by people like this Nazi guard. And so, very much the same, forgiveness was the last thing on their mind. They couldn't either. But you know what John's saying? God could. God could forgive them. And, and as, as persecuted and hated and abused as people like Cory Ten Boom or, or, or even Israel was, God was infinitely more. Yet God could forgive that Nazi soldier and millions more like him. And listen, not because it wasn't that bad, not because God just said, I can overlook that. Absolutely not. Brothers and sisters, God could forgive that Nazi soldier regardless of what sins he did or did not commit because just as John the Baptist testifies, 
Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of everyone who would believe in him. And the reason he could take away their sins was not because their sins weren't that bad, but because Jesus' righteousness is more powerful than any unrighteousness that has ever been perpetrated. His kindness is more powerful than any hatred that's ever been held in any heart. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ can take away the sin of anyone who believes because His blood is more powerful than any blood that man has ever spilt. And hear me when I say, that includes you. That absolutely includes you. There is not a sin you can commit, abortion, homosexual, transgender stuff, whatever, murder even, it does not matter. There is not a sin you can commit that cannot be taken away by the Lamb of God. So, so when John the Baptist testifies that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, what, what John's really saying is, do you really believe your sins are forgiven? Do you really believe it? Not in your mind, in your heart. Because if we do, then saints, we must live like it. We must let the world see the freedom we have from sin and shame. We, we must let the world see the glorious hope to which we've been called. And brothers and sisters, like John the Baptist, we must be consumed with letting the world know about the one who bought our freedom and our hope with his blood. Do you believe that Jesus is the Lamb? Because John the Baptist's testimony isn't over yet. You see, after calling Jesus the Lamb, John pivots in verse 30 and says this, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, that may not sound weird to you, but here's the thing. Luke tells us very clearly that John the Baptist was older than Jesus. So how can Jesus be before him? Well, let me put it to you this way. You look back in verse 23 when John the Baptist says he's a voice in the wilderness crying out, Make straight the path for the Lord. That verse he's quoting from Isaiah says, Make straight the way of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In other words, John the Baptist is saying that Jesus Christ came before him because his testimony is, is not only that Jesus is the Lamb, but that Jesus is Yahweh, the existent one, the one who always has and always will exist. He's saying Jesus Christ is both Lamb and God, both Lamb and Lord. And, and how did John know that's who Jesus was? Well, he said in verse 31 through 33, he said, I myself, I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water that he would be revealed. And he said in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Just like he said in verse 33, the one who sent me baptizing told me it would happen. Meaning God told me that this is how it's going to work. When you see the, the, the bird land on the spirit land on this person and remain, that's my son. Meaning 
John the Baptist knows Jesus Christ as God incarnate because God told him that's who he is. God said, the one on whom you see the dove rest, that's my son. Now, I don't know about you, but, but this made me wonder. What in the world does baptizing by water have to do with Jesus being anything? How does that play into this whole equation? It seemed like a kind of an odd thing to say. I baptize with water, that means he's the son of God. Well, you see, back then, if you were a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, you had to do several things. And one of the things you had to do was a, a ritual bath, or you could call it a baptism, that symbolized you washing off your old life. You're not going to be that person anymore. Leaving your old life behind. But the crazy thing about John the Baptist was this. This is what we might not understand. He was doing this to Jews. He was baptizing Jews with water. Jews were saying, I'm going to leave that life behind. Jews didn't do that. That's a big deal. They were Jews. They didn't need to repent. They were the sons of Abraham, for God's sake. God chose them. He loved them. It didn't matter what they did. That was for dirty Gentiles. But John was like, nope, you too need to repent and get ready for the coming of the Lord. In other words, John's baptism didn't have anything to do with salvation like ours does. John's baptism was simply an outward display of the people, including the Jews, that they recognize they need help from, from the coming divine Savior, from God himself. God's people needed God's help. That's what he's saying. And so who does John say showed up in verse 34? And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So I ask again, brothers and sisters, do you believe in the testimony of John the Baptist? Do you believe what he's saying is true? Because here's the thing. A lot of people, Christians included, they're cool with the Lamb, not so much with the Lord. They're cool with the lamb telling them their sins are forgiven. I like that part. That makes me feel good. But not so much with the Lord telling them how to live their lives. And I'm sure you can probably think of at least a few people that fit that mold. But humor me for a minute. Think really hard about how you feel about Jesus being your Lord. Like wives, think about the last time your husband said something to the effect of, I don't think you should do this or that. And your heart just erupted inside. How dare you tell me how to live my life? Or husbands, when your wife said something, like, I don't think your priorities are in the right place. You're missing too much church. You're, you're, you're spending too much time or money in these places. And everything inside of you just boiled up, like, look who's so holy and never does anything wrong. Or, or what about when someone God has placed as an authority in your life says, I'm pretty sure the Bible says you should do this, or you shouldn't do that. And your guts just scream out, who are you to tell me what to do? Are you sure you believe Jesus is your Lord?
What about when Jesus tells us not to look for security or or hope in in the people of this world, yet our hearts are still washed to and fro as the political waves like sea billows roll? Or what about when Jesus says not to store treasures up on earth, yet we have this incessant need to keep buying things? Or how about when Jesus tells us to give generously and sacrificially, and we're like, here's some change, God. It's what I got left over. What about this one? What about when Jesus says to forgive others like he's forgiven us? You okay with him being Lord then? That person that treated you horribly, forgive them. That person who abused you, forgive them. You okay with Jesus being Lord then? Because so often we treat animosity and bitterness and resentment They're like VIP guests at the bed and breakfast of our heart. Brothers and sisters, do you believe John the Baptist's testimony? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your lamb, that he's taken and paid for and cast every single one of your sins into the deepest part of the sea? Because if you do, then do you believe he is your Lord, that he has the right to command your life, And that every step we take and every decision we make should be metered and weighed and and asked of Him what we should do. Jesus Christ is your Lamb and your Lord. He is your Savior and your Sovereign. He is your King and the Keeper of no wrongs. He is your Redeemer and your Ruler. Jesus Christ is the one who created the world and the one who creates righteous people. He's the one whom nature obeys and the one who nurtures your heart. He is the one who commanded light to shine and the one who shines the light of life in you. He is the one who cut off the head of your enemy and the one who keeps you in his hand. He is the most holy and the most humble. He is the foremost and the forgiver. Brothers and sisters, He is the great physician and the great I am. He is your Lamb and your Lord. So I ask you one last time, do you believe John the Baptist's testimony? Do you believe that Jesus is your Lamb and your Lord? Because here's the thing, so hard for us to grasp, that that as difficult as it can be, to to submit our guilt to our Lamb and our lives to our Lord, as difficult as that can be, let me tell you something. You've never felt joy like the joy found in obeying your King. Freedom. Don't get me started on freedom. There is a freedom to be found and experienced in conforming to His will that you've never had. There is bottomless hope There is eternal rest. There is a peace that surpasses understanding that's found only in submitting to His authority. So let me close by showing you maybe just an example of what that joyful submission looks like, that conforming freedom. Earlier we left Corey Ten Boom standing there, the hand of that Nazi soldier outstretched, asking her to forgive him, and her saying in her heart, I can't. But she continued. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, 
hand thrust in my chest. But it seemed to me, but it, to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God gives has a prior condition that we forgive those who injured us. If you do not forgive me, men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. And still I stood there with this coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not, a, not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried out, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is your Lamb and your Lord. So lift your eyes to heaven and see the Holy One eternal. Behold the Lord of majesty exalted in his temple. Now see the king who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters. The sacrifice for ruined man, the substitute for sinners. Now see the Savior lifted up the Lamb who reigns in splendor, the hope of every tribe and tongue. His kingdom is forever. Stand with me and let's make that our response. <laughs>